Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today my guest is Dr. Hamel Patel, and we're going to be talking about the biology of meditation. I learned about Dr. Patel's work through my experiences at Dr. Joe Dispenza, and I wanted to invite him on the podcast to learn more about his amazing discoveries. Dr. Patel was born in India and moved to the U.S. at the age of six. In 1998, he obtained dual bachelor's degrees in biology and philosophy and religion from Truman State University, followed by a PhD from the Medical College of Wisconsin in 2002. Then he was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California, San Diego, where he continued to develop his independent research focus and career. His laboratory studies membrane biology and stress adaptation with a particular focus on mitochondrial biology. He's currently a full professor with tenure and a vice chair for research in the Department of Anesthesiology, running a vibrant research group, including high school students, undergraduates, graduate students, postdoctoral fellows, anesthesiology residents, research scientists, and junior faculty members. His laboratory recently began working on defining the biology of meditation. I hope you enjoy this exciting podcast. Welcome, Dr. Patel. It's really an honor to interview you today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, we just came fresh out of Dr. Joe Dispenza's advanced follow-up workshop at Marco Island. As the timing would have it, we just got back from that. And this is, of course, top of my mind. I've been studying this work, especially this year, and really intrigued in how I can not only have my own personal insights and experience by experiencing the work, but also how I can create a language of what is really happening when we're going through these practices so that I can share this um, with my patients who are in desperate need and finding solutions for their health. So I'm so excited to learn more about your work and the fact that you are studying this important connection. Yeah, no, I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. So we'll just start and dive in about you know what really brought you to study meditation. It was sort of a, a circular kind of thing. Um, so you've met Toby Muller-Bertram. So Toby and I shared an office for about eight years when he was at the VA. Um, so I was a junior faculty member in anesthesia. He was a, a pain attending. And so the the thought that we had was if you put an MD in the same room with a PhD that we'd rub off on each other eventually at the end of the day. And so he'd have a long day in clinic. I'd have a long day in lab. We'd sort of talk about stuff at the end of the day and we hit it off. We were we're very good friends. And then he left and started his own uh, pain um, clinical service in Palm Desert. He now has a, a huge service. I think it's like 17 clinics that he runs. And when the opioid crisis hit, he started thinking about alternative ways to manage pain in his patients. And it, by some fortuitous circumstance, Hillary Hamilton, who's also part of the research group, was working in his clinic and said, hey, you got to check out this guy, Joe Dispenza. And Toby's like, yeah, no, who this, who's this Joe Dispenza? Spenza guy. And Joe actually visited him in his clinic and he was too busy. They didn't really get to interact. And, and Toby finally made it to a Cancun event. And like many of us who go to a first time event, he was just blown away. Um, the stuff he saw, you can't make up. I mean, it was just phenomenal. And so he went up to Joe at breakfast and said, hey, we got to study this. And Joe's like, yeah, we got to study this. And Toby's like, I know a guy, and then I'm the guy. And so that's how we got involved in this is he knows that I do a lot of molecular biology, biochemistry. And I think this is where really the, the veil is there, right? There's this magic of what happens during one of these events, but there's got to be a biological signature and imprint that explains this. And so that's what my lab came in to do was to sort of demystify this mysticism that was going on. 
And so that's what we've been trying to do for about 18 months. 18 months. Wow. So, well, I'm so glad that all of this lined up, of course. And I know that you're relatively new um, to looking at all of this. And, you know, prior to having this opportunity, have you had much insight or experience or connection with these ideas around meditation or these kind of more energy, biophysical type of experiences to measure in the body? Yeah. So, I mean, I was born in India. Um, I grew up as a Hindu. And so it's a it's a practice that's ingrained into the culture, um, yoga, meditation, those kinds of things. Um, it wasn't really, I was, you know, I was spiritual in the sense that I believed that something bigger than me existed, but didn't really have a clue what that was. When I went to college, my, this was my time of growth and stuff. And so I was a biology major because this was something I was good at and enjoyed. But then I was at a liberal arts university um, in Northern Missouri called Truman State University. And the, the goal of their education was that not only would you become an amazing biologist, but in order to be a, a liberally trained individual and a human, you had to learn other disciplines. And so I took a, a survey to philosophy class my first semester. I loved it. And the teacher and I hit it off and she convinced me to become a double major in philosophy of religion. And so I explored Eastern religions, Western religions, all kinds of philosophy. And in that process, I found a, my my guru who was a, a German Hindu, which is kind of an interesting kind of circle. So Lloyd Pfluger had spent years in India and then essentially ended up in this small town teaching Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and I remember going to his house on a lake and, and learning this mantra that only he and I to this day know. And it's this special bond that we had. And so I, I practiced my mantra meditation for months, years in undergrad, but never really. And then it just sort of, you know, falls by the wayside when life gets busy. And then 20 years later, I find Joe. So that's sort of my path to, to having meditation, losing it and then finding it again. You didn't realize your mantra was preparing you for this, right? I know. I guess, you know, <laughs> nothing nothing happens by chance. I love that. So, well, no, that's great. So you have this, you know, uh, contextual framework and all of this, not only, you know, academia um, and study, but also your um, own personal quest. So I, I love that you have that. And again, you never know how this all, you know, makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, when how your life comes together. I guess, I mean, you were far from that when you approached this work again. And so did you have any pre conceived ideas or thoughts as you approach starting to study the work that Dr. Dispenza is doing? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a skeptical scientist, right? So when you go into a, a field or when you're asking questions, I tend to be very unbiased. I want to look at something without a preconceived notion of, of an end result. Uh, when I heard the stories, they were unbelievable, right? People walking out of their wheelchairs, stage four cancer disappearing. I'm like, no way. There's, there's no way that's happening. And so I, I came in with a healthy skepticism. But at the same time, I think, uh, you know, I, I found faith late in my life. So I, I have converted. I'm a Catholic now. Mm-hmm. I went through a conversion when I had some major things happen in my life. And it's led me down this path. And, and it, it was really this realization that there isn't this divergence of faith and reason, that two of them exist together. And it's really this balance of, of how you view faith in, in rel- relation to reason that, that you can live as a scientist and as a, a functional human being. And so I think one of the things that makes my science strong is that I do have a faith, right? Some of the things I invent in my head about experiments, people come to me and say they're unbelievable. A lot like what Joe says, right? They don't want to do these experiments because they don't think that they're going to work. 
But then when I do convince people to do them, it turns out that we've uncovered this new path that we're driving down. And so I had that skepticism, but I was open to to see what the possibilities were. And I think, and Joe appreciated that, you know, he welcomed us into the the thing. So there's no expectations. You go and dig. If you find nothing, you find nothing, but maybe you may find something. So Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's such an important place to come from because, you know, like you, when I'm sitting in those seminars, I I mean, and I've gone to a lot of medical conferences, I've been around a lot of, you know, interesting, you know, healers and seen a lot of different things. I come back and I share with my team that I have not seen in one setting more what we would consider miracles than any other community. There's something there that we need to understand, right? Because from, you know, my lens, of course, there's layers of, you know, how I believe you know, the paradigm of healing needs to shift, you know, and that comes from, of course, the pandemic. And then I, before the pandemic, I've been treating a lot of chronically ill patients who really just have not been served by our conventional medical paradigm. They've had to reinvent the wheel and find really, you know, other people who could really connect and say that this is not just a psychosomatic illness, or this is not just in your head, that there's a really, you know, there's a picture here. So I think that this work and like any work that's pioneering, you know, we, we have to understand the language. So I'm, I'm so right. glad that you're able to study this. And so I guess, where, where did you all start? So here you are, you know, coming to this, you know, group, having healthy skepticism, seeing these unbelievable stories. So how did you start interacting with this community? Yeah. So, you know, like everything, right? Money drives it all, right? <laughs> so that was the first barrier. And so we had this amazing donor come in who's part of his community and said, um, she visited the lab, we hung out and she really wanted answers. And so she said, here's some money start. And so we did. And one of the things you learn in this community is once you get that slight taste of abundance and you sort of start moving, it's just, it's a snowball, right? And it's just, it's snowballed since then. And so when we started this process, it was a a small grant that we were given to just sort of play around and see what we come up with. Um, I think I burned through that cash in about three weeks in terms of (laughs) what it costs to do stuff in the lab. But we we started and and we did this initial study in Indian Wells in February of 2020. Um, was a small study. I think it was only about 28 subjects that we did. Um, only three or four controls, about 10 or 11 new meditators and about 10 or 11 experienced meditators. And it was just simple study where we were doing caps, looking at brain activity before and after the experience. We were doing HRV measurements before and after their, their week-long experience. And then we decided to collect blood um, before they started, and then six, seven days after the the, the meditative experience ended and, and to do. The idea was that we were going to see, if we're going to see changes, we would see them at the two extreme ends, right? Before they start this process and right after they finished it, because your mind goes to all these places. And then we got it in the lab. And I think those samples probably sat in my freezer for about three months before someone bugged me and said, hey, do you have any data yet? And so we started just playing around with machines we have in the lab and just you know, here's some samples, try on everything we have. And it came up as something that was unexpected. And so I kept seeing things that we shouldn't be seeing, right? We saw changes in exosome profiles. We saw changes in the response to cell biology. And and every time we put this plasma from an experienced or novice meditator after their experience, it changed the behavior of the biology that we were looking at. And then it got to the point where I'm like, so what new thing are we going to discover today kind of thing? And then sometimes they'd come up with a finding and be like, I just don't believe you because that makes absolutely no sense, right? It's just, 
It's blood from a meditator. And somehow that meditative experience transferred a phenotype into that blood that we can actually test in, in living systems that have never seen meditation. And so it just sort of took off. And, and Joe had been trying to get me to come to a retreat for about 12 months since that. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out eventually. But then the data was just so compelling that I ended up in Orlando and it sort of it's history after that, right? So, yeah, that was my first event as well. And so, and it's almost, it's probably synchronous that you saw the changes in the blood before you went to the event. Cause then you were, you know, your curiosity was so yeah. and peaked and primed and that's incredible. And, you know, again, that's just getting started, right. But still a very small sample, but seeing profound changes consistent. Yeah. And then obviously with, you know, the world as it is right now, we're all looking at ways to feel empowered, to feel, you know, how can we improve our immunity? How can we improve? improve our health. And I know that you all have been looking at the relationship between especially his community, his meditations, his work, how resilient we are to viral infections. So can you share what you've been up to? Yeah. So that was sort of an opportunistic kind of thing as well. So the Indian Wells event happened in February mm -hmm. 2020. And then we all know what happened sort of in March, right? The world slowly began to shut down our labs as well. And so we were trying to invent things to do that would allow us to come back to the lab. And so we really sort of reoriented the lab to start working on SARS-CoV-2 virus and, and COVID disease. And so we built some fake viruses that would allow us to track how SARS works in a cell system. And we actually did the study backwards. What most people would do is look at a global population and effects and then try to come up with the, the biochemistry of it. We had the blood samples in the lab. And so we sort of pie in the sky experiment was let's incubate this blood on cells that have never seen meditation and either lung cells or the primary cell where you get a COVID infection. And then add the virus in this fake virus that would allow us to track how SARS-CoV-2 moves in and out of cells and then see what happens. And the sort of the, the jaw-dropping thing that we saw was that when you incubated the cells that had never seen meditation with plasma from an experienced meditator, and then you added the virus, the virus couldn't go into the cell. And so somehow there was something that that experienced meditator was creating that prevented this viral entry. And so we figured out what that is. And that's sort of a sort of a focus of a paper we're working on. But then the backward experiment we did is then we thought, well, we should have really asked the global community what their experience with this is. And so we recently ran a survey where we asked people whether they were COVID positive, um, whether they're vaccinated, all these you know hundreds of questions. And then ultimately, if they are a Joe meditator, how long have they been meditating and how often do they meditate? We had about 3,000 people respond, which is pretty good, um, from about 66 countries across the world. So it gives us a lot of power to look not only at, at San Diego, California, but really all over the U.S., all over Europe, Australia, parts of Africa, parts of Asia. So really a global sort of reach. And then we started looking at the data analysis. And what came out of that was that a couple sort of associated factors. So if you have been meditating more than six months, your COVID positivity rate is about half of what it is if you've never meditated. And then what we noticed is that if you meditate once a day versus once a week, you have a much better impact in terms of limiting COVID positivity. And then what was even more striking is that in the individuals that were COVID positive, so out about 3,000 people about 14% had said that they had tested positive for COVID sometime in the year span that we were looking at. The ones that had disease, 
the disease was completely managed in terms of symptomology. So you had less brain fog, less congestion and other factors if you'd been meditating more than six months. And so, I mean, it's profound that you can see that individuals that tend to have a a regimented program of Joe meditations have this amazing ability to, to either prevent infection in the first place, or if they get infected, to have this amazing resiliency against the virus. Mm-hmm. It's oh. a, yeah, it's such a beautiful message, right? And yeah. as you looked at the data, I'm sure you know some people are you know thinking about okay, was there a trend in amount of time that you saw that that was kind of the sweet spot of time that people needed to meditate to have these uh, physical effects each day? Yeah, I think the the best effect we saw were in the individuals that were meditating at least once a day. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a benefit of meditating once a week, but it's like you know taking a pill, right? If you go to your physician and they said you really need to take this to control your chronic disease every day. And you decide, well, I'm just going to take it on Sunday Mm -hmm. and Friday. You're not going to get that same benefit. So Mm -hmm. I think kind of like that pill, this is a dosing effect. The more you do it, the better off you are ultimately. Mm -hmm. And the happy side effect of meditating is that you're not going to shut down your liver with a pill or other things that may happen, but Mm -hmm. you're going to feel vibrant and, and healthy in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, uh, of course, this is such an empowering message and people, you know, have t- more time these days and everyone's really reflecting on how to create different lifestyle changes to be healthy. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're all looking at our lives differently, right? right? As a thought exercise, I know that, you know, maybe you'll get to study this even more, but, you know, just because you have your experience, you've been in Orlando, you've here, or, you know, been in touch with the community. Do you think that it's something specific in the actual process of how Joe walks people through to meditate, or is it just the meditation in and of itself? That's something we're interested in, right? Um, there are people that have been studying practices for eons and Mm -hmm. and they show health benefits but it's never been studied at the level that we've been studying it i would like to apply this sort of technique to to mantra and some other things to see if there's a unique element of what joe does that isn't captured in some of these other types of meditative practices i think we'll eventually get to that i mean when you know the goal is that we'd have a, a meditation institute that we'd eventually build and then it would allow us to study various aspects there is, you know, like I said, I've meditated in the past. I never felt the way I did after one of Joe's workshops. He talks a lot about this, that it's the environment's the same, right? It's a ballroom. They all look the same, that kind of thing. But I think where if you were to look at the environment that's created, that's uniquely different at his event is it is a thousand to 1500 people that have somehow uniquely ended up together. And that is the environment, right? It's the community of how we're interconnected and linked to each other. And I think the reason why there's such an amazing amount of healings and things that happen is that when you combine the force of all of these individuals in the same, I mean, it's a tight room that we're in overall, relatively speaking, is that that energy elevates. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the unique environment that I don't think other practices create. A lot of meditative practices are in the silence of your mind and your home, right? You're away from all of the rest of the people that that generate. And so an inductee into this process is someone who is surrounded by 1,000 to 1,500 other minds that are doing the exact same thing. And so I think what he's doing is he's entraining that mind during that week-long experience so that when you do leave, you, you resonate that energy for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, with the coherence healings, I think that even after you leave, you're connected to those people that you hung out with there. 
Mm-hmm. I've been trying to, um, yeah, just try to um, come up with my own ideas too of this experience. And there's like a entrainment or an attunement, you know, that he of course sells his meditations online and people can experience the work without going to a group. But uh-huh. I think there is a power, you know, yeah. to, you know, um, starting this or being initiated or attuned in this way. And, you know, obviously I consider him a modern day, you know, pioneer and he's very talented, gifted um, and what have you. He's combined a lot of different methodologies into his own practice and of course has his own unique and so practice as well so combining like the breath work with this whole idea of heart brain coherence and so there i think there's these themes i'm really studying trying to study more the electric universe and the you know he calls the fourth state of matter plasma and how we really can harness that in a collective community for a healing field because i don't know if this was your experience but when i was in some of those meditations you could feel the field of energy that was palpable like you can yeah. literally feel yeah. it. Anybody who walked in there, whether they're, you know, want to believe this or not, there there's an energy that ha- was created that is full of potential and full of healing. So yeah. of course yeah. my mind goes, okay, like what's the formula and, and how do we create like modern day is it healing temples instead of hospitals or right. I, I don't know, you know, I don't know where this goes, but um, I was just curious if you guys are noodling on um, those aspects of the work. Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed, you know, we were doing some brain mapping in the back of the room during the meditations. And one of the things that Nick and Tiff noticed is that there was some synchrony that was happening. Mm-hmm. And so you can really measure this in two people that are sitting next to each other that have these brain caps on. And so you would see where one person would have sort of this gamma wave activity and it would propagate into the person sitting next to them. They're likely having meditative experiences themselves, but the fact that they're so coupled suggests that there is this linkage and connectivity between us, right? Mm-hmm. And and then just imagine that amplified with all 1,500, or I think it was about 1,000 people in that room all at the same time. And so I think there is an element to that. The question is then how do you scale this once you leave, right? And so we happily and by dumb luck fell into a group in San Diego. We, we met as a, there's about six or seven of us that were in Orlando. And one of them came up to me and said, hey, would you want to form a group in San Diego that meets up regularly to meditate? And so we meet every Thursday as a group. We have a nice space and, you know, it's got this amazing speaker system that pipes in Joe as loud as you are at an event kind of thing. And we've noticed that when you have six or seven of us in the room, it's not the same as if you have 20, 25 of us in that same room. So there is this power in the number of people that happen. And so I think the scalability comes from his students initially. I think you're going to form these healing sort of quasi healing centers outside of tried and true hospitals with these groups as they leave and go back to their communities. And then the eventual hope is that you will form some coherent kind of entity around that you know maybe joe dispensa clinics all over the world <laughs> hey we we need them right yeah and you know i'm, I'm thinking too just knowing this in my community in this community too like the part of us who want to know like the biohack right like is there some you know biohack that this experience you know that we can take parts of this experience yeah to use therapeutically. So have you right. all thought about? We, I, I mean, I think about that as a scientist, this is something I'm a, you know, scientists are reductionist by nature, right? So it's how do you take something very complicated, reduce it down to one thing that I can put into a pill or a drink or something that you could take, right? So my mind does go there. We will discover that. So for the people who can't meditate or are too lazy to do it or just <laughs> don't want to do it, 
there will be a hack eventually that we come up with. And, and so we're thinking about this. The global idea behind this is that eventually if we study enough healthies, we will find some pattern that emerges that we will be able to predict what a, a person who is diseased would have to do to get to that healthy state. So I think that's coming, but it's probably five years or plus down the line when we have the ability to collect all of this and the funds and and resources to really make that happen. Um, I would imagine it'd be millions of dollars to to see that come to fruition. But, you know, with the buttons, I think it's going to happen. The other aspect is, I think uh, the, the other thing I've learned there, which I think is quite profound, is that anyone can do it, right? I mean, if you look around that room, there's young people, there's old people, there's brown people, there's white people, there are people from all over the world, and they're all achieving some element of, of elevation eventually. And it's, it's practice. You just have to put your mind to it. And the more you do it, the better off you're going to be. But it's time. It's it's a lifestyle change that you have to make. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, in medicine and, and, and in healthcare, that that's one of the hardest things to prescribe is a lifestyle change. It's, it's very true, you know, and I think that that's why I think also the power of the group, right, to, yeah. um, you know, hold people accountable and get people excited. And, you know, I, I think that's also another um, probably point of why his community is so strong and connected. And, you know, I uh, I mentioned this maybe in some of the, my other talks when I, I was in a conference earlier this year in one of the doctors, um, MPH, and he was studying public health. And one of the defining factors of health and mortality is community, you know, so I yeah. think, you know, as we had to go through the landscape of the world in the last however long, you know, that was something that we really were disconnected from, you know, yeah. so as we re-enter, you know, and re-emerge, you know, really making this priority and not being afraid of it, but actually right. as, as an indicator and marker of health and yeah. your research can maybe allay some of the people who are still in the fear mindset, because of yeah. course, you know, yeah. there's lots of reasons to be, but um, that actually community can be, you know, health, you know, a health biomarker, right? So, I mean, you know, they've done these crazy studies where they look at these aged communities, right? And there's one, I I think it's somewhere on the East Coast and they couldn't figure out why these people were living longer because they smoke like smokestacks and they drink and they do all these crazy weird stuff. But it turns out that they all formed a community back from their old country and they lived together when they moved to the U.S., and it was that community environment that you had, that you had someone that would listen to you, mm-hmm. someone that would help you if you had to move, if you had to fix your house. What we face and as individuals that we live, you know, in my neighborhood, I know my neighbors, but outside of that, I don't commune with them. I don't eat with them. I don't have an existence around them. That creates a lot of stress, right? And, and for a community that's close-knit like that, where you can rely on others in that community to help you, stress goes away. And I think that's one of the the, pro- the problems and solutions to all of this. If you can eliminate stress by using a, a community environment, I think you you live much longer and the data tends to show that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I love that. And I laugh, you know, being a naturopath, we ask people to do all these things and lifestyle and, you know, the through line through Joe's conferences, like he's not telling you to eat a certain way or yeah. he's even having tequila at night or, you know, like, it's just like, there is no rigidity around right. prescriptive lifestyle that, that can be really hard, you know, and people, yeah. and people fail 
you know, treatment because they think that they hyper-focus on that. And so I, he, I think um, when we're in community and in right. the field of energy that right. he's teaching us to cultivate and, you know, create that has a smaller impact on ourselves, you know, yeah. which I think is important because, you know, in my world, there's so many things to be freaked out about. We got EMF, we got fluoride, we got glyphosate, we have COVID, we have, you know, there's so many things to that could go yeah. wrong, you know, in our physiology these days. Yeah. And so resilience is something that I'm always trying to, yeah, just understand and to help my patients with. And I think this is a tool for ulti- the ultimate resilience. Yeah. I have like, if I, you know, just um, being able to have this conversation with you and I know that you all had a, a panel, which I thought was really cool and opened up uh-huh. conversations to the research community um, when we were there. And I had a few questions that I just, you know, have a conversation around things that I think from my lens of where I sit, there's some themes and patterns I see that I think would be interesting when you get your hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, for research, yeah. you know, one is, you know, when I think about the brain and the health of the brain, I think a lot about the lymphatic system and that's the yeah. lymphatic system yeah. that is most active and it was newly discovered, right. Um, in 2015 or so, but it's, it's a very um, foundational piece of how I help recover people's brain health and their nervous system. Yeah. And so I, I know that we're starting to touch a little bit on the fluid dynamics in the brain, but yep. are you all looking at lymphatic clearance or? Um, yeah. Like um, so we had, Toby and I have talked about doing some cerebral spinal fluid measurements as well. Uh, and there it's in the works. It's going to be more planning than not. He used to do this when he was at the VA and and we've got a a freezer full of CSF from patients and they would collect it in a circadian fashion throughout the day. The problem is you'd have to be within 10 minutes of a major medical center just in case things go wrong because things can go wrong. And, And so we're, we've started talking about how we can actualize this. And so, you know, I think Joe's going to have some events in San Diego that are coming up, which would then allow us to put in an IRB and actually do studies on campus during one of these events Mm -hmm. where we would be able to do more invasive kinds of measurements. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people would sign up for it, but you never know. Yeah. You know, and I I have a a mentor who looked, used ultrasound though, to look at the, he did a study on children with autism and found um, more uh, fluid um, in the brain and also um, fluid in the congestion, the cervical lymph nodes, kind of the drain and shroud out for the brain is just, um, just a thought coming to mind, the ultrasound imaging could be like an in-between too. So cool. I'm so glad you guys are looking at that. One thing too, Joe mentions, of course, he talks a lot about the pineal gland and the pituitary yeah. and uh, melatonin and oxytocin. And then he goes into that conversation around antidiuretic hormone. I don't know yeah. if you follow that. Um, so how, you know, antidiuretic hormone is there to basically swell the cells and receive the information. Many of my patients have low antidiuretic hormones. So uh-huh. we call it the biotoxin pathway. Dr. Uh-huh. Rick Shoemaker came up with this pathway and we look at mold illness and biotoxin illness, usually from Lyme and co-infections. There's a pathway pattern that we see. And many patients have low levels of antidiuretic hormone. You know, they get up in your visit and pee five times and they wake up at night to pee and how we've made sense of it, but it's not been gratifying to me is that often when people are mold exposed, they inhale mold, Uh Um, mold can colonize in the sinuses, create dysbiosis, and then biotoxins can be produced there and get into the brain through the 
pheromones. Uh, pituitary, and, yeah. yeah, yeah, pituitary. So some people find like when you clear all this up, that regulates. But, you know, we give people electrolytes every now and then I do give people desmopressin, which is synthetic antidiuretic hormone. But I, I just, that could be like such an easy biomarker to study. Nine out of 10 of my patients have low antidiuretic hormone. Yeah. And, you know, the thing too, is like the lasting changes, right? You know, like right. we're seeing lasting changes in this community, right? right? So. Yeah. So just kind of putting that out there, I don't know if you guys have. Yeah, so we we actually, it's interesting you asked that. So we've been interested in melatonin for a while, but we just have not measured it. And and Juan finally measured it. And so we had, we had a research meeting just before we're talking today. Oh. And he presented some of that data. And, and I'll show this at an event coming up. But the, the data was sort of what we expected, but not. Melatonin levels are elevated, but not. I mean, we collected samples all throughout the day. And so if you're an experienced meditator, there's an increase in melatonin. Mm-hmm. I would imagine, so now this has sort of sparked my interest in, in looking at other bloodborne hormones and other factors. I would imagine you're going to see changes in serotonin, dopamine, um, some of the opioid endogenous peptides, anandamide, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to start looking. I mean, if, if we're going to fish for one thing, we're going to look fish for everything yeah. else. And so I think you're going to see uh, a, a a series of factors that are going to track nicely together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just by the the work, you know, how could the pituitary and the yeah. know, whole hypothalamic pituitary right. yeah. um, axis not improve, right? right. So, and one of these sort of dream experiments I've written down in the book that that we keep trying to plan, but it's just you know, it's we want to respect the the experience of the people that are attending, and so we try to be as as least intrusive as possible. But to really do science, you have to intrude. So we're planning on intruding very soon. Um, What I would love to get is a circadian blood collection, right? So if you could collect blood samples every four hours for a 24 or 48-hour period, including urine, saliva, and other bodily kinds of excretions, you could really build a very clean picture of what's happening to the body during a meditative experience in a circadian fashion. When you look at health, the reason why we have a lot of diseases are because our circadian biology is messed up. And if we can reorient that circadian biology, which is what melatonin and all these other compounds will do, I think we tend to be way healthier, right? The better sleep you get, the better cycling you're doing, I think better off you're going to be health-wise everywhere. And that ties to metabolism and other factors as well. Yeah, I think our circadian biology is completely dysregulated in the modern times. And I think yeah. it's a big factor. And I yeah. think we're also melatonin deficient. We we use a lot of melatonin in our practice. And, um, you know, this, of course, is a very elegant way to optimize it and kind of come, go at it from a whole different angle. But I think, yeah, there's just a lot of stressors are in our um, environment that deplete yeah. it. Um, so, um, and the, I mean, I guess you're probably looking at the gut microbiome at some point, too. We are. So that, again, becomes an invasive issue, but yeah. it is, it's something we're interested in. Um, I think we're going to do the first study with gut microbiome probably in January in Marco mm-hmm. Island. So I think we're going to do a large study there and we're really going to try to get at that. I, it's changing. I mean, the yeah. metabolites that we see at the two extreme ends, they're very different. And so most of those metabolites are coming from your gut microbiome. And so mm-hmm. we expect to see those like, I mean, you've seen the, the cloud of change that happens in the mm-hmm. new meditators. I bet you their gut, fo- gut flora are changing as well. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you know, the joke is, could you identify bacteria that you just then eat in the morning and you'd be set for a meditative, 
enlightened right right yeah the psychobiotics right yeah Yeah. Yeah. um, and melatonin to my understanding is primarily produced in the gut too because of all of the serotonin production so that might be a whole other you know hey while we're getting enlightened our microbiomes are too (laughs) right Right. um so no curious um about that it popped in my head, um, but I'll, I guess I'll ask it. So a lot of the work that I do is around detoxification. So again, you know, we're trying to help people reduce their environmental burden. So that can help, you know, regulate and improve their immune system, their endocrine yeah. system, you know, all of that. Um, and so I'm curious, I, I suspect, but I'm curious if there is a natural detoxifying effect in the body and there is an increase in excretion and urinary toxicity, like you could measure uh, mycotoxicity toxins, uh, glyphosate, um, heavy metals. I I do believe that, um, you know, I I see this in my own little um, world that when people do profound um, spiritual work or emotional work, their body actually detoxifies. And so I'm just curious from that angle to see what's coming out of people um, as a result of the work. So we haven't been collecting urine. That's been one of the things, again, on our list of things to do. So that is happening as well. So we're going to, I think, introduce the gut microbiome as well as urine in the January study. The other thing that we're going to start to do is um, we're going to put on a patch where we get 24-7 glucose monitoring as well. So the idea is to just start building in more sensors. So everyone's got a Garmin, so we're tracking them whether they're at an event or not. And so that's one of the, the beauties of this study is that though we get you sort of more invasive when you're at the event, we can also see what happens to you in terms of your activity, sleep, oxygen, that kind of thing with the Garmin trackers after you leave. And and we're interested in mining sort of that data set. Mm-hmm. The other thing we've started doing is tracking people that then come as repeat subjects to successive events. And the goal would really be to follow them out for multi years to see if the, the biology is reproducible at every event. I suspect that it's going to be reproducible, but it's going to change as they evolve their meditative practice. And so I think, you know, it's the funds and everything comes into all of this. Mm-hmm. The more money we have at play, the, the more things we can archive and look at from the human body. And if I had my way, I would take every excretion that your body releases, <laughs> including tears as well. You know, yeah. we, there's a lot of crying that happens at these events mm-hmm. and I, there's got to be something in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you're you're just getting started, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I guess one one last question. Um, my community yeah. is really um, into water. You know, we're yeah. in the structured water, hydrogen water, deuterium depleted water. You know, like you name it. So, yeah. um, you know, obviously there's the waters in our body that I'm sure you're to um, continue to measure. But any interaction with what um, the work that is happening in the spins and what you're able to measure um, is how the how water responds. Yeah, so we're we're starting to play around with that. Um, I've done just some homegrown experiments with our group in San Diego, and we do see some changes in the physical behavior of water when you um, put it in a room of meditators. And this is only 20 people with an hour and a half meditation where your intent is on the center of the room kind of thing. So in Denver, we're hoping to do some more water-based experiments in the larger room where you've got 1,500,000 people. I think we're going to see some dramatic changes there. And, and you know, you can control for a lot of stuff. We'll have water we leave here in UCSD. We'll have water all over the hotel that's not in the room and try to control for electromagnetic waves and other things. And so that you could just go crazy with it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there is, I I think there is evidence and I think we're going to show even more that, that there is this ability to change 
and capture frequency in media like water, right? That, that you're not necessarily trapping that frequency, but the information that that frequency wave creates is going to reorient the, the minerals and other things that are in that water. And then when you drink it, I think you're going to get the benefit of that. Mm, that will be fascinating. And I would love for, you know, a mind like yours to look at that because, you know, in the alternative community, we, you know, we d- deal a lot with like homeopathic medicine and, yeah. you know, um, frequency imprint in water to be, you know, quite frank. And so we see that clinically having an effect, but trying to explain it to, you know, other people yeah. or, you know, why. And of course, you know, we have all sorts of ideas. So just um, validating that um, in the way that we can, I think is again, uh, the future, because it's also, you know, such low dose intervention, right? You know, there is, you know, not a lot of- But we all drink water, right? So it's an easy thing to take. Yeah, yeah. No, and there there are, I mean, I I can introduce you to the water community. There is a whole, you know, whole host of frequency water people. So um, it'd be interesting to see what, you know, what changes there, so. Yeah, no, and we're we're hoping to apply some of our reductionist systems to do this, right? We, in you can drink the water, but then you'll see this effect on the body. But then again, it's, is it a placebo that you expect this to change? Adding the water to a cell, there is no placebo. Either the cell behaves or it doesn't. There's no mind to sort of control that behavior. Mm-hmm. And so we'll be able to, you know, the ultimate goal is if we can transform water is can you add that water into the basic unit of life, which would be the cell and see these molecular changes that you'd predict. And then since we have the the changes we've seen in the blood of these meditators, it'd be interesting to compare that change to what the cell does on its own with water being added to it and see if there's correlations as well. I'm so excited. Yeah, this is I know. I, I I know that you all will get the funding to explore these, you know, conversations and these um you know in the science, right? The science yeah. to explain, you know, the mystical as uh, Joe says. And I'm I'm just yeah, so I'm this is like a kid in a candy store, how excited I am I know, about, yeah. you know, the um the the future. Is there anything else that um we haven't covered that um is on your heart to share with uh, the audience? No, I think, um, you know, if, if anyone in your community hasn't made it to an event, I'll be the the Joe nagging them to go. It is, it's going to transform your life. I mean, going there, I had no expectations. I thought we were going to hang out at Disney World the whole time, but it was, it's work. But I think when you finally sort of give up and give in and, and take it all in, it, it really changes who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, well said. And I, I'm a student on this journey as well. And I, I would echo that. And I, yeah, I just am at that point where I just want to share this with as many people as possible and whoever resonates, yeah, find, find their way there. So, yeah. well, where can people find out more about you or if they want to, um, you know, just learn more about your research or even donate to the research, where can they go? Yeah. So if they want to find out more about the research, they could go to the unlimited site that that's the Joe official website. And there's a, a little button up at the top called proof. And under that, there's all our stories of scientific discovery and stuff. And I think some of our recorded lectures from the events are there as well. There's a new nonprofit that's forming around um, funding this research on in Joe's community um, and around this idea of, of meditation as a way to, to really sort of explore what's happening in the body. It's called Give to um, uh, Research, and I think it's just givetoresearch.com. And you can learn about sort of their their mission statement and and donate right at their website. And that money will end up somehow in the labs and and in these studies that we're planning. So 
Thank you. Well, thank you um, so much for your time today. And yeah, that no, was great. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the work that you're doing. And yeah, just being open to, you know, what the work continues to show all of us. So thank you. Yeah, that no, was great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Battelle. Please check out his work at his lab, cardiacneuroprotection.com. And if you want to learn more about how to uh, donate or be a part of the research, uh, Give to Research is the nonprofit to fund his research. And again, if you are feeling drawn to Dr. Dispenza's work, please check out his website as well. I hope you have a beautiful day.